Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Taxing questions ahead of the general election. As the spending pledges of the major parties add up, how might the tax rules have to change to pay for it all? If you're already dreading doing the annual tax return, would you prefer it if computers did all the hard work for you? Chris Giles, the FT's economics editor, has been probing the future shift towards personal tax accounts that could deduct what tax you owe in real time. And if that's induced a sense of panic, we'll be rounding off the podcast with a host of savings tips and tricks that could help you balance your own budget. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. Nobody can fail to have escaped but notice that Britain is heading for the polls on December the 12th, the Prime Minister's last-ditch attempt to win a majority and get his Brexit deal through Parliament. Will he get a majority? Well, who knows? We'll leave that for my esteemed colleague Seb Payne to discuss on the FT Politics podcast. But we will focus on the potential impact it could all have on our personal finances. Now, the day that we're recording this podcast, November the 6th, was originally supposed to be the day of the budget. But the snap election means that the next budget is likely to be in January. So regardless of whether it's Sajid Javid or the Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell clutching the red box when the day eventually comes... Voters are expecting tax rises rather than tax cuts. Joining me in the FT studio today is Namesh Shah, partner at Blick Rothenberg, the firm of chartered accountants. Welcome to The Money Show, Namesh. Thanks, Claire. So you were due to come into the FT today anyway for the past, I don't know how many years, you have been one of our independent budget experts um, embedded in the newsroom with the FT money team. I mean, do you feel shortchanged that there hasn't been a budget this year? It's it's really sad, personally, that... There's no budget this year for me personally, but also just generally that there's a lot of policies out there that have been sort of put on the back burner, buried, that should have really come into force, but haven't done. Um, obviously, the B word has taken precedence this year. And this time of year, autumn budget, it's usually a raft of tax legislation, a raft of consultations, which will shape policy, tax policy over the next 12 months, 18 months or so. So it is generally an exciting time for us sad tax advisors. Um, and to not have something this year, as I say, it's it's disappointing just generally. Well, you might yet get a bit busier um, before Christmas because ahead of the election, um, the major parties haven't published any detailed manifestos yet. So we don't have any formal details of their taxation plans to discuss. But judging by the October spending review and other pledges that parties have made, whoever wins, public spending is set to soar. That's certainly the noises coming out from the major parties. 
And with public spending going up, there's likely to be some tax raises. Uh, the maths doesn't sort of add up if you don't have that on one side. Now, some of the parties, I don't want to get too political, but some of the parties have said that they'll borrow heavily to fund that that public spending. But inevitably, there's got to be some tax rises to balance those books. So let's run through um, where the tax acts could fall, as it were. So income tax has already attracted a lot of attention on this campaign. Now, you've been running some numbers on that. Yeah, income tax is the one that is easiest to play with um, politically, but also just numbers wise. Uh, It's the largest revenue raiser for the government, um, income tax and national insurance, because most people work. And it's the one that captures all the headlines as well. Um, Now, Labour and John McDonald have come out and over the last few years and have said what they do to income tax. Uh, I mean, John McDonnell has been the one who's been the constant throughout the last few years, whereas the Tories and the Lib Dems have obviously had changes in management. And Labour have suggested that the top rate of income tax, currently 45%, well, the threshold would drop down to 80,000. So that's a big drop from the current 150 down to 80. And they'd reintroduce the 50% tax rate, which hasn't been around for a few years, Uh, It was the last Labour government that introduced that rate, Alistair Darling, and they'd bring that in at 123,000. So tell me, in numbers terms, what would that mean for somebody on a £100,000 salary? So under the Labour proposal, uh, they would be worse off by £1,000 a year. So about £100 a month they'd lose. Now, that's assuming that national insurance rates stay the same at the same level that they currently are. And we expect there would be some tinkering with those uh, with any income tax changes as well. Um, now, the Tory policy is very, very different. They would say they'd increase the basic rate band, so the band that you pay 20% income tax at, to 80,000. It's currently 50. Uh, they'd want to push that up to 80. So another 30,000 of income would be taxed at 20 rather than 40. And again, using the same example, uh, under the uh, under the Tory proposal, hundred someone earning a hundred thousand would be six thousand pounds better off. So there's a swing of seven thousand pounds between the Tory policy and the Labour policy. And I have to say, I don't think that that Tory policy, as much as Boris Johnson wants to uh, believe it, he said on the campaign trail um, for the Tory leadership that that was what he would do. The Chancellor has rode back quite strongly um, against that proposal in week, recent weeks, saying he wants to prioritise public spending on those key election issues like the NHS rather than cutting tax bills for people who, let's face it, are already very wealthy. Yeah, it, it was a huge uh, commitment, sort of a financial commitment from uh, a, Tory gov- a Tory government to raise that threshold to 80,000. I, th- I think the the figure was quoted around being £4 billion uh, of, of sunk cost to bring that in. Uh, and in a time when, yeah, public spending needs to go up, they've all said that uh, they need to find that money to, to um, through tax raises. So it, it doesn't seem logical that we would see that come through. And as you say, Sajid Javid has backtracked quite strongly. Uh, from that, I could personally see rates maybe staying the same. Um, we might see some tinkering with some of the uh, some of the bandings. Maybe the hundred and fifty thousand that's been in place for a few years now, or well, ten years actually. Uh, the top rate that band could go up because it's not increased with inflation. That is a bit of a giveaway for the top earners, which uh, which the Tories do want to do something at that level. Um, but on the flip side, and it's always speculation at any budget, I know we haven't got a budget today, but pension contributions and higher rate relief on pensions, could that 
could that um, ultimately could that sort of be curtailed even more, even disappear as much as I hate to say it? Um, with all the pension changes that have happened around the annual allowance, top earners are really capped at ten thousand pounds now on how much they can put into a pension with the annual allowance. Uh, if you earn more than two hundred and ten thousand pounds, so actually removing that benefit is that going to be um, is that going to be a bitter pill um, for, for for those top earners now, given that they're capped anyway? Uh, and they could then benefit in some way through a higher rate, in, uh, so, the, so through a uh, through an increase in the band, as I said. Well, another thing that's very topical at the moment is the NHS and the pensions taper, which tapers down, as you said, the amount that top earners can pay into their pensions down to a floor of £10,000 is causing huge problems in the NHS because um, doctors and consultants are refusing to work overtime and waiting lists are going up because they're getting these big tax bills uh, because of the inflexibility um, of the taper and the NHS pension scheme combined. I mean, do you think that we could see the taper being scrapped altogether, which would keep the NHS happy, but also please quite a lot of higher earners? It's such a complicated system. Uh, pensions have just been tinkered with far too much, in my own view, over the last uh, sort of 10, 15 years. I would do away with the taper. Um, I would also simplify the pensions regime completely. And as I said before, this business of the £10,000 capped annual allowance, is that really a huge benefit now for those top, top earners? And would they actually find it more beneficial if they had... Um, a giveaway somewhere else and then just do away with the pension relief completely and it would um, obviously boost the government coffers significantly. Well, another one that is often worried about ahead of any budget or election is inheritance tax. What do you think could happen there? Uh, Inheritance tax is really in need of huge reform, just generally. Um, Now, the Conservatives haven't said too much, although there was some, some suggestion from Sajid Javid at the conference that he'd like to abolish it completely. Well, he said, he said I'm a low-tax guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, he's a, <laughs> and he's a tax simplification guy as well. So if you're a low-tax guy and you want to simplify it, IHT, you, you could at an extreme level, yes, you could abolish it completely. It actually accounts for really small amounts of revenue, but the cost of administration has to be huge. There are units within the revenue who just deal with IHT. So the compliance burden, both for the revenue um, and the taxpayer, is massive for what is a relatively small amount of return. And it's a tax that everyone really loads. They pay tax on their income and their earnings during their lifetime. They've saved up and they want to give something to their children and their grandchildren, yet they're taxed on it again. So some people do view it as a double tax. Now, the other view, the Labour view, is that our inheritance tax regime is very generous. Mm. Um, actually, it's an optional tax if you believe some of the some of the spin that people would put on it because you can give away wealth, you can give away um, your, your assets, your cash, and if you survive seven years, in theory, you don't have to pay any IHT. IHT advice is either you spend it all or you give it away. You don't have anything on your deathbed. That's the best form of IHT advice. Um, now, Labour have suggested that they could replace that seven-year rule with a um, with a gift tax potentially, so a lifetime cap on how much someone could give away, and the thresholds seem alarmingly low. The numbers being thrown around are as low as one hundred twenty five thousand pounds that you can give away in your lifetime, and on death in total. And then after that, you suffer IHT. Now it would simplify things. You just say that um, IHT just applies to that threshold, and that's it. And the US and other countries do have similar systems of a gift tax regime so you can give away a certain amount and then you're into just lifetime gift taxes and IHT thereafter. 
Well, we'll have to wait for what the manifesto say to see the final details. But I mean, with um, things like that, I mean, are you seeing any evidence of people trying to preempt um, the election results or how the rules might change and take any kind of action before the poll? Uh, I think that's been going on for probably 12, 18 months now. Um, there has been uh, action within the financial industry of saying what people could do. It's difficult to sort of pin down exactly what you can do because there's no precedent, there's no law there, there are no rules there to say what you should or shouldn't be doing. But I have seen people make quite large gifts in in uh, anticipation that the seven-year rule, uh, the fact that we don't have a gift tax at the moment, could be abolished, could be changed. As say, IHT's not really had major changes since its introduction. Um, so uh, the seven-year rule has always been a moving target for the government. So making big gifts, if you're thinking of making a gift this side of the election, maybe it's time um, Maybe it's time to accelerate that. And finally, Nimesh, whatever happens with the election result, do you promise to come back to the FT for the budget in the new year? I really hope that we have a budget in the new year. It's not a great time for tax advisors or their accountants because everyone has to file their tax return in January. Um, but I'd always make time to... Uh, to comment on the budget. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much there to Namesh Shah, partner at Blick Rothenberg. To make sure that you're in the loop about all of the latest election news as it happens, follow FT Money on Twitter. Our handle is at FT Money. And if you're an FT.com subscriber, sign up for our email alerts. And also look out for the live blog on the election that the FT will be running in the lead up to the events. So if that item has left you worrying about the effects of paying more tax, would it be more palatable if it was easier for you to pay your tax bill? Well, more than 11 million people are now required to complete an annual self-assessment tax return. And HM Revenue and Customs has long wanted to ease the panic and delay of filling them in. Now, Chris Giles, the FT's economics editor, has been looking at how they might do that. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Very nice to be here. So technology, how could it help collect taxes in the future? Well, ultimately, Technology could be, in some ways, the tax man's dream if what it does is that all reporting essentially goes automatically to the tax offices and they can collect tax automatically from people's bank accounts and people don't have to fill in forms. And all of this is, happens in some ways without people noticing, which has some drawbacks in itself because people, you should, for democratic reasons, we should maybe know what people, what we're paying to the government. But for ease of use reasons, people, it, it might be quite a popular way of doing it on one side, so long as it's done accurately. Well, yes, I mean, because that is the, is, is the big problem. But um, before we go into that argument, other countries have already got real-time systems in place. I was amazed to read in your column. And they're not the places you'd necessarily think. So you not, might not think that Russia, for example, is uh, at the top of the technology tree. But in taxation, Russia, Israel, South Korea, Portugal, even Italy, oh streets ahead of uh, where we are in in the UK. I went to see the Russian um, tax system back in July and it was really one of the most remarkable trips I've ever done as a journalist because it's very close to Red Square, an old Soviet building. You go in there and then you go down to a basement and the technology on display is just amazing. So uh, particularly for their VAT system, when you buy something in Russia now, Every single till is linked directly to two data centers somewhere in the middle of Siberia. Uh, and so they can, within 90 seconds, see anything that's bought anywhere from Vladivostok in the east 
uh, to St. Petersburg in the west of an enormous country. And the head of the tax office did a very nice check with me where he said, well, which hotel were you staying in? He found it on screen and he found the coffee I'd had the night before. Wow. He found the receipt <laughs> of that. It didn't have my name on it, but he found the receipt. He could he, see that you had bought that thing from that hotel. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is incredible. And what they found is that it's it's got rid of an enormous amount of uh, low-level fraud, essentially. You know, Russia's well-known for having quite a lot of high-level fraud uh, and and corruption, but sort of, you know, ordinary people not declaring stuff, uh, that has been enormously successful. So while they've had a very unsuccessful economy in the last four or five years, tax revenues have gone up uh, very rapidly. And this uh, tax commissioner is very popular, therefore, with... The president, and so they're what they're now doing is they're extending. This is taking instead of going from an economics basis into technology, they're extending the technology to other taxes. So self-employed people, they're automating that. And we've just seen this week, in fact, in the UK, the Office for Tax Simplification here has been advocating something rather similar. Mm. Here, so that instead of you uh, declaring your self-employment income at the end of the year and then maybe a year later HMRC comes back and asks you questions or investigates you, uh, getting the people who've seen the money or the, where the money's flown, th- you know, where it's from being paid something, if banks or if you're a landlord, the letting agency, if they if they report directly to HMRC, rather like employers do under a PAYE scheme now, means that your individual tax account could be, as it were, populated automatically without you having to do anything and tax can be deducted very quickly or you can at least see very quickly what tax you are likely to owe by the end of the year. So that, that is something that is being suggested here. It's quite a few years off, certainly, but it is definitely the direction that tax authorities are going in around the world. Now, listening to that, how well do you think this would go down with taxpayers in Britain? I, I agree with you. I think that some would love it because tax returns are um, you know, a bit of a nightmare for the uninitiated, especially, um, to fill out. But there's a lot of execution risk here. And would people trust HMRC to get it right when there's been so many mistakes with things like universal credit and other government-run systems? Uh, I think the answer to that, the short-term answer, is no. Uh, and when you talk to former very senior tax officials here, they say that, you know, that's sort of the difference between the UK or an advanced, uh, very advanced economy and somewhere like Russia where, you know, hard cases here create news stories and scandals and in Russia or in, in less advanced uh, developed countries they can just you can just say it's tough you know you 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 are you're an exception you've got a difficult case well tough and you just have to pay those are the rules and our tax system is also considerably more complicated than Mm. uh, certainly we wouldn't have it as complicated if we were started from scratch and one of the things that's interesting in let's again i'll go back to the russian system the russian new self-employment tax is that voluntarily people in the gig economy can either choose to be taxed normally with an income tax at the end of year even even if the reporting is automatic they then have to then work out their tax at the end of the year or they can opt for an incredibly simple tax which i've forgotten is something like five percent of turnover you can't deduct anything for costs and that comes straight off your bill and if you go for to that system that's it your taxes are done and um and they're saying that that's very popular partly because the rate's low partly 
because the rate is very low. But um, uh, but people are moving into that system and they're saying, well, it's, it's actually raising money for us. And um, so we might see innovation, I think, in future. But so long as we have our current tax system where it is complicated and difficult to get right, then you will get mistakes. And that's where, you know, there are downsides with high automation. Well, thanks very much there to Chris Giles, the FT's economics editor. You can read his FT column, Expect the Taxman of the Future to Take Your Money in Real Time, online now on FT.com. And finally, we promised you some savings tips if you kept listening. And boy, have we got some. I wrote my FT Money column last Saturday about a friend. She is a real friend, by the way, who earns about £75,000 a year. She bought her first flat five years ago, yet recently confessed that she's got absolutely nothing at all in savings. By the end of the month, all of her wages had vanished and she was not entirely sure where they had all gone. Sound familiar? I'm joined by Becky O'Connor, personal finance specialist at Royal London, um, to discuss. Welcome to The Money Show. Thanks, Claire. Great to have you on. But the first thing that anyone in this situation should perhaps do is check the rate of interest uh, that they're paying on their mortgage. Well, that's quite right. So your housing cost is, is likely to be your biggest monthly outgoing. And if you're unnecessarily overpaying on that, you could save yourself a few hundred pounds simply by switching to one of the cheapest deals on the market. So SVRs are around four and a half percent. Tell us what an SVR is. It's a standard variable rate. Doesn't um, sound expensive. Standard. Well, no, yeah. it doesn't. That, and that's... It's, it's slightly misleading because it's what mortgage lenders put you on when you come to the end of one of the cheaper uh, deals that they offer. So a two year fix, say. Um, and if you come to the end of that deal, your mortgage lender will have written to you about it at some point to tell you in most cases they should have done anyway. But sometimes you cannot see that or you might just, you, I don't know, you miss the letter. You get put on the standard variable rate. Your mortgage uh, payments suddenly go up. You're thinking, why on earth am I paying £300 more than I was last month? If you take the time to do something about that, you can instantly save yourself a few hundred pounds. Um, and there are still millions of homeowners who are paying the SVR. We're not all on the cheapest deals. Um, so that's the first thing that you should look at. Do you know your mortgage interest rate? I do, um, but lots of us don't. So just make sure you know. Yes, and you may be pleasantly surprised when you see what rates um, are available on mortgages now, pretty much at record lows. Now, another problem um, I found with my friend was bank statements. Now, she, like millions of other people, doesn't get a paper bank statement anymore because of online banking. Um, I have still opted in to paper bank statements because I like to go through um, all of my data um, with a red pen. And whether you do this online or um, on paper, this can reveal some horrors. That's right. And actually, the old fashioned paper statements are quite, um, I know that they're not that's good for the environment. But if you have something in front of you, it forces you to engage with it. And what we have now with online banking is usually a summary of transactions, most recent transactions, and you actually have to click through a number of clicks to see a PDF statement. And that's true of credit cards as well. And many of us may just not bother. We'll have a look at the balance and the most recent transactions, but we won't get further and actually go into the statement. But it is only a few clicks. You can download a PDF. You can, you don't have to print it off. You can just highlight it with a highlighter on your phone screen. Um, but just to go through the whole list is quite a discipline and you can do it um, once a week or take a bit longer and do it once a month. Um, but go through and make sure you know what you've spent and highlight anything that you're not sure about. And um, 
it may reveal some surprises. I did this myself a few weeks ago and I found out that I'd been paying $9.99 a month, I'm ashamed to say, for a subscription that I hadn't used for over a year. And it was through Apple because the invoice came through and it said it was an Apple invoice. It didn't tell me what it was for. And it was for a language app. Um, so I thought it was for something else that I was paying nine ninety nine a month for, but it was only in actually going through all of those transactions and and clicking through that I realised it was for something I wasn't using. Brilliant. But on the plus side, you've saved £120 a year. But um, I spoke to somebody who works in finance um, about this at an event a few weeks ago, and he said that he'd been paying for two gyms for several months and had not realised. And I thought, clearly you're paid too much. (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't haven't noticed that. But also, um, credit cards, um, they're another area where people can go wrong because um, they might make the minimum payment and then end up paying lots of money in interest. And again, it doesn't look like much. No, that's right. And it's usually you realise once you've uh, you've actually um, paid the interest for a month and then you think, oh my goodness, that's £50. Where, why am I spending £50 extra on my credit card? Um, and it's because, you know, the, the promotional deal that you were on, the 0% balance transfer rate may have come to an end and you didn't make a note of it or, your credit, or you missed the email from your credit card provider and suddenly you're whacked with an extra you know it can can be a huge amount of interest depending on the balance um so make a note of the end of promotional rates um where you're paying 0% and then suddenly an interest rate of well 19 20% can be suddenly applied um and it also you know don't accidentally spend on a card that isn't for spending you may think you've got a 0% credit card uh, and it's 0% for everything but it won't be 0% for purchases um and you you know with contactless payments now it can be quite easy to whip out the wrong card to make a contactless payment and use a credit card that you're going to be paying interest on rather than your spending card that is Zero percent. Absolutely. Now, I mentioned in the column that the only way to avoid lapsing back into some of these bad habits is to actually set a budget, work out what you've got left after your um, fixed expenditure, your rent, your mortgage, your bills every month and say, well, this is what um, I want to do with it all. Um, It's surprising um, that more people don't actually think about it mathematically to just kind of let it all happen by chance and hope they don't go overdrawn. That's so true. And budgeting, it's a bit of short-term pain for long-term gain. You may, The first time you do it, it may take you a little while um, to go through what is essential and, and what are the kind of non-essential things that you're spending each month. Um, but again, the old-fashioned paper-based method is quite good. They have a method in Japan called Kakebo, which is a, a sort of a weekly manual where you go through um, your budget every week. Like a bullet journal yeah mm. and it's really handy i try i have tried it um i don't do it every week i do it usually every month but it, once you've done that first one it makes it easier to keep going after that um the 50 30 20 rule is a good one to keep in your head it's 50 percent of your net salary um can go towards essentials every month 30 percent to your wants um so that may be clothes holidays, that kind of thing. Um, And then 20% of your net salaries, that's after tax, um, should be going into savings of some kind. Um, You can can play around with that a little bit. It's really just a guide. Um, And um, it it does require you to sit down and work out the percentages of your net salary, um, which, you know, is a little bit of effort. But it's, you know, I was surprised when I did that, how much I should be 
saving actually of my net salary it's probably more than you think but it should be achievable with those ratios and then with the savings obviously what you can do um with the money saved there there are lots of options there i mean personally i um set a savings um target for the year based pretty crudely on the kind of holidays that we want to have because that's going to be our biggest um expenditure so i've got three children but we would say okay we're going to save this much um through a direct debit to a savings account. Not that we're getting great interest rates on a savings account, but it, crucially, it puts it into a different pot. And the card um, for spending on that pot is not something I carry around with me or even have in a wallet. I have it sellotaped in a in a, in a folder <laughs> for, sa- for safekeeping because I don't really want to have to be taking money out um, of the savings apart from when we're, we're coming to, to pay for the holiday because we want to make sure that we've got enough. But I'll set up that direct debit to come out on the first day of the month um, when I get paid to make sure that it's coming out early rather than late because otherwise I probably would have spent all the money. Yeah, and that you've removed that temptation then, it's gone. Um, if you leave it in your current account, it's always there. You're thinking in the back of your mind, I know that money's in there, I can afford that chest of drawers or whatever it is. And then you're you're putting your goals out of reach, your longer term goals. Um, like you, I try and have a plan for the year ahead and decide what the spending priorities are for us in that year. Um, that's the short term savings goal. And then we also, as a family, have the long ter- longer term savings goals um, where you might put slightly less aside um, each month to meet your longer term savings goals than you do your shorter terms ones, shorter term ones. But over time, you're going to get there. Um, you may have to make compromises along the way. Um, you may decide all of a sudden that your most important thing you want to do is clear your mortgage early, um, which is you know is a good use of additional savings. Um, I would say if you can get debt free and interest free, um, that, that's a, that's a laudable aim. Um, and you want to maybe not put um, quite as much into your cash ISA, um, or maybe you want to cut back on holidays, and it's worth it's worth doing so in order to pay your mortgage off early. These are decisions that you can keep under review. Um, it's not set in stone forever, um, but the pot method, putting um, or jar, if you think of it as a jar with a label, that's quite helpful. We've got the holiday jar. Um, children's savings jar for when they reach 18 um uh, pensions obviously your own pensions jar you can you know you don't have to stick with the amount that you you know your employer tells you to put in you can put more into a pension you can set up a private pension too if you're self-employed and you don't have an employer scheme um and you can set up a stocks and shares isa you can set up a stocks and shares isa or a lifetime isa if you're uh, below 40 um which you can use to put towards a first home or uh, retirement savings, and you get 25% um, government bonus for that money. Um, The it's quite important to have an emergency cash buffer. So once Mm, you've paid off, I'm glad you've mentioned that. Yeah. So it's um, I mean, the traditional wisdom around this is three to six months um, worth of your salary um, should go in an emergency savings pot that you can access easily if you lose your job or something. And that is your buffer. That's your peace money that's I feel um, like I you know I've got something there in case it all goes wrong if you don't have that that should perhaps be a priority once you've paid off any large debts or interest-bearing debts 
Um, and then you can look to things like stocks and shares ISAs, um, which are a little bit more risky and long term um, than, than where you would keep your emergency cash savings. Well, of course, if you're saving up your money over the long term, then investing it could be a better answer than cash savings. Now, thanks very much there to Becky O'Connor from Royal London. If you want to read more about these tips, my FT column, Play Trick or Treat with Your Finances, is on our website now, ft.com slash money. And if you want to share any of your views with us on the best way of savings, then get in touch. Our email address is money at ft.com. That's it from The Money Show this week. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.